Good morning. So uh, last week, if you were here, uh, we talked about discipleship. Uh, one of the marks of the church is making disciples. And we did a little thing at the end where people filled out a little card to say if they wanted to be involved in discipleship, either being discipled or making disciples. And so I just wanted to let you know I'm working on those. And if there are others, maybe you weren't here last week, but what I've just said sort of, oh, that's intriguing. I'm interested in in that. Just come up and talk to me. Or if you were here last week and didn't quite know, it was kind of like sprung on you to fill out this little form, but you're still interested in the uh, being part of a discipling relationship uh, that we want to sort of try to form among the body here, then just come up and talk to me after service and I'll get you in the mix there, all right? So we're in the midst of a, a series on the church, and so far uh, we focus mainly on what we, as members of the church, members of the body of Christ, what we do, okay? Our actions, or, or at least what we're supposed to do, right? First and foremost, we're to, and this was the first week, we're to glorify God. And, and we do this by, I mean, that's sort of the heart of what we do, right? We glorify God, and we do this by remembering Christ, Christ being the center of who we are, by studying the Word of God, by praying, by, by fellowshipping, by, by witnessing, by making disciples, etc. Next week, Anthony's going to speak about service, the, the serving church. I mean, that sort of is a nutshell of, of what we do, who we are. We glorify God by living in obedience to Him, to His Word. That, that's what we do. And what I want us to focus on today is not what we do, but why we do it. What is or or what should be our motivation, our driving force for living the Christian life, for living in obedience to God? Now, people are are motivated to obey God uh, by all kinds of things. Uh, The promise of reward, fear of punishment, uh, trying to look good for other people, hoping to earn some kind of favor from God. But as we'll see, the Bible teaches that our motivation for true obedience must come not from these things, but from our love for God. That's really the, the heart of it. I don't, I don't want to overpromise. So ha, how many of you uh, watch basketball? Okay, I'm speaking to the wrong group of people. Professional basketball. So if you if you're if you're if you've been around, if you turn on a radio, a TV, you know that LeBron James is now in LA, right? And so up until him coming, there was a lot of uh, talk and there was a lot of promises made, you know, he's going to transform this team and he, and he might. There's been two games and they've lost both. So so far I just don't don't see it so far. But so, so sometimes you get promises made to you and you get over-promised to. I, I don't want to over-promise, but I think what we're going to talk about today, if, if, uh, if understood, if applied, can really revolutionize your life as a Christian. Can change uh, how you think about things, how you think about your relationship with God. 
It's key to experiencing victory and joy and satisfaction in the the life of a Christian. This idea of, of loving God. So today, I'd like to look at five things the Bible teaches us about loving God. There there are probably more. I'm just going to focus on these five. And it's my prayer that that as we examine God's Word, that He will work in our hearts, that we'll grow in our understanding and our experience of loving God. And so the first truth I want us to look at is that loving God is for our good. It's for our good. Being in a loving relationship with God is the best possible place for any person to be. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, Moses writes uh, to the children of Israel, he says, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So this is prior to going into the promised land. And I want you to notice first that that loving the Lord your God sort of summarizes what it means to obey His commandments. We'll talk more about that shortly. But but for now, I, I want us to see that God promises a blessing. He promises a blessing to the children of Israel, a blessing they would receive through loving the Lord their God, through being in a loving relationship with God. I think sometimes we think the Old Testament, it, it, God is a different God. He didn't really want your love, your relationship. He just wanted you to obey his commandments. And that's part, and we'll, we'll look at how, how those two are related shortly. But God has always been a God who wanted us, he loves us and wants us to be in a loving relationship with him. If they faithfully love God, then they would live and multiply and be blessed in the promised land. This truth that God blesses those who love Him is is found again and again in the Bible. Proverbs 8.17 I love those who love me. I mean, if you want to be loved by anybody, you want to be loved by God. And God says, I love those who love me. God loves those who in turn love Him. Now, Now, the Bible teaches that God loves everyone, right? For God so loved the world. Most quoted verse. John 3.16, yes, God has the, a general love for His entire creation, a, a love that uh, uh, caused Him to send His one and only Son. But, but there it exists, I believe the Bible teaches, a deeper love for those who respond to His love with love for Him. And out of that deeper love come special blessings, blessings that the general world does not experience. God acts. He works to bless those who love Him. Psalm 91, we read, Because He holds fast to me in love, God speaking, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. When He calls to me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I will show him my salvation. For those who hold fast to their love for God, God promises deliverance. God promises protection. He promises to listen to and answer when we call. If you're struggling, maybe in your prayer life, you might examine your heart. You might might ask yourself, do I really love the God to whom I'm praying? 
Do I pray for His purposes? Do I long for a relationship with Him? Or am I just bringing my agenda and saying, God, approve this? And most importantly, God promises to reveal, uh, to show His salvation to those who love Him. And there's more. Listen to the most often quoted promise in the Bible. We looked at this several months ago in our study through the book of Romans. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. This is an amazing promise, right? But it's not for everyone. The promise is for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those who respond to God's call upon them and they, they enter into a loving relationship with Him. For those, He will work all things together for the, their ultimate good. Loving God is for your good. Now that, that doesn't mean that if you love God, you'll never face difficulties, you'll never face pain, you'll never face suffering. But it does mean that even in your difficulties, your pain, your suffering, God is at work for your ultimate and for your eternal good. That's what the Bible teaches. And I believe Paul points to that ultimate good in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, but as it is written, what no ear has seen, nor, nor no, excuse me, no... I'm sort of reversing here. What no eye has seen, your ears don't see. I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for who? Those who love Him. God's blessing on those who love Him is seen in this life, but His ultimate blessing, blessing so great we, we cannot even conceive we can't conceive of it. We can't understand it. It's reserved for our future. Blessings we'll experience throughout eternity as we continue in our loving relationship with God. Uh, uh, David calls those pleasures forevermore that we'll receive in His presence. And that is really good. So we've talked about how loving God is for our good in general terms, in in ultimate terms, in our eternal uh, life terms, how we'll be blessed, how He'll work all things for our ultimate good. But but I'd also like to just take a moment and give one specific area, because I think it's a big area, where loving God now positively impacts our lives. It certainly positively impacted my life. I know this by experience. I know it by talking to others. And I know it from the Word of God. I want us to see how loving God enables us, empowers us to have victory over sin in our life. I know of no way to consistently overcome sin and temptation in my life than to be in love with God. What do I mean by this? We can devise all kinds of uh, methods and strategies to help us avoid temptation, to help us avoid the, 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 the world, the, the flesh, and the devil. Don't go down the ice cream aisle if you want to lose weight. That's a, a strategy, right? We can in, install uh, special software on our computer to keep us from going to the wrong places on the internet. We can form accountability groups. So we have to confess our sin, and we, we don't want to do that, so that helps us, that strengthens us so we can overcome and, and not be tempted, not give in to sin. 
And all of these things are great ideas, and we should do them. But ultimately, our sin problem is a heart problem. We sin not because we're overwhelmed by temptation. We sin because we're sinners and we love sin. And we cannot overcome our heart issues of sin until our heart is transformed. Until our heart is so full of love for God that sin no longer appeals to us. We must love God more than we love our sin. We can for a time uh, with, with willpower, depending on how much willpower you, you have as a person, and help from friends, we can avoid uh, certain sins. But until we replace our love for sin with love for God, our heart will still long for it. We may not do it, but we're still longing to do it. And our body will find a way to give in to it. John Owen, a 17th century Puritan church leader, put it this way. To respond to the distorting nature of sin, you must set your affections on the beauty and glory of God. The loving kindness of Christ and the wonder of the gospel where our affections filled, taken up, and possessed with these things, what access could sin with its painted pleasures, with its sugared poisons, and its envenomed baits have unto our souls? And I know the language is a bit dated, a bit old school, but the truth is beautifully stated. Sin will have no place in the heart of a person who has set their affections, their love on God, on His purposes, and on His glory. You're going to be filled with something. Are you going to be filled with love for God? Or are you going to be filled with love for sin? And it's when, and when we're freed from the power of sin... That we can then truly experience all the, all the blessings, the, the joys, the satisfactions that God offers. So I, so I hope we're convinced, at least here, if it hasn't moved here yet, at least here in our heads, that the, I hope we're convinced that loving God is for our good. Because if, if you're convinced of that, then the second truth takes on new meaning. And the second truth is that loving God is commanded. You're commanded, I'm commanded to love God. And that sounds a little strange, even though I think we know it's true, but, but how, how does that work? When we think of commandments, when we think of rules, and we think of laws, we often think that they're meant to keep us, to keep us in line, Right? to curtail our freedoms, to stop us from having a, a good time, the, the don'ts, don't do this, don't do that. But that's not true of biblical commandments. Every commandment that God has given is for our good. God commands what is best for His people. And that is certainly true of the, the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. In Mark 12, 30, Jesus says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That is the greatest commandment. Notice the, the kind of love that we're commanded to have. And, and, and notice it, it came from the Old Testament. We've always been, the people of God have always been commanded to love God. And this love is a, a full and complete love involving our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. 
And the fact that, that this is a command me, means that loving God is not an optional part of, of the Christian life. Every person, every Christian is commanded to love God with all their being, with who they are. Now we need to understand that, that loving God, like, like most everything else in the Christian life, is, is a process. We grow in our love for God. It's, it's not that in this life we will perfectly love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, if, you've ever th- if you ever think you've made it in the Christian life, oh, I'm, I'm doing really good. Think about how much more you can grow in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the question is, are we pursuing this greatest commandment? Are we seeking to obey this commandment? Are we seeking to love God with all we have, with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength? Are we doing everything possible to make loving God not, not a priority in our life, but, but really the priority in our life? Now, I know that Jesus goes on to point out a second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, to not only love God, but to love people. And we'll look specifically at, at this command to, to love your neighbor, to love people in two weeks from now. We'll talk about uh, the, the people-loving church. But for now, know this. We cannot, we cannot obey the command to love people as God instructs, as God intends, until we seek to obey the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, so are you seeking to obey God to obey God's command to love Him. Do you even know how to go about that? How to obey this command? Well, at the end of the message, the last thing we're going to talk about specifically is how we do that. But first, I want us to see three, three more truths that I think will help us in our pursuit of loving God. Third truth, loving God is shown, maybe underlined shown too, by obedience. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Your love for God will be demonstrated through your outward obedience, through outward action. We, we see this, we know this in human relationships, right? Because I love my wife, serving her, doing what she asks, brings me satisfaction and joy every single time. Well, there you go. To the extent we love someone, our service, our obedience to them uh, is satisfi- is, satisfies us. It's enjoyable. I think that's why uh, I've never been a, a, a school teacher, high school, college, elementary. But I think that's why students, I, I remember being a student though. And I think that's why students often do better in classes when they like I don't know if they love, but when they, when they like or admire their teachers. As humans, it gives us joy and satisfaction to please the ones we admire, the ones we love, the ones we like. So it seems we're wired in such a way that our love for someone results in loving actions to that someone. And when that someone is God, those actions should be filled with obedience to His commandments. If I love God, I will seek to bring him, just in reviewing what we've talked about over the last seven, eight weeks, 
If I love God, I will seek to bring Him glory, for He's glorious and He commands us to glorify Him. If I love God, I will study His Word. I will learn about Him and He commands me to study His Word. If I love God, I will spend time in prayer, in relationship with Him. I'll spend time in fellowship, fellowshipping with uh, the body of Christ, with one another. Uh, We see, we can know more about God when we when we fellowship together, because each one of us reflect God in different ways. If I love God, I'll witness. I'll I'll tell other people about His greatness. I'll make disciples for Him, because He is worthy of, of being followed, and so on. If I love God, my life will be characterized, I'll be shown by obedience to His will, to His commandments. Now notice that I said, had you underline, loving God is shown by obedience. That obedience is, is the natural response to loving God. However, that, that does not mean that obedience to God is equal to loving God. Some Christians have suggested that loving God is an action, not an emotion. That loving God does not need to include our feelings. And I think we... we uh, miss it big time if we buy into that. The Bible teaches loving God includes our emotions, our heart, if you will. That's our fourth truth here. As parents, as parents, if you've been a parent or if you are a parent, we know that uh, emotionless obedience is not ideal, uh, not even desired. If we tell our children to do something, there are, there are four basic responses. I, I realize this is a continuum, but I'll, I've boiled it down to four, and I'll put them up there for you. They can rebel, disobey, and, 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 and not do what you tell them at all. First response. They can begrudgingly obey out of fear of punishment. Second response, they can, they, can, they can dutifully obey because they recognize our proper authority over them. And finally, they can relationally obey out of their true love for us. Some parents might say that they would be happy with number two. Just if I could get number two, this, any kind of obedience would be fine. Others are okay with number three, just instilling the sense of duty and authority is important for a child. But God doesn't settle for number two. He doesn't settle for number three. He commands us to love Him with our heart. He commands our emotional response to Him. But unfortunately, we often stop at number three, thinking, okay, I've reached the pinnacle here. I've reached my destination. I dutifully choose to obey God because I recognize His authority. But God wants more than dutiful obedience. He wants, He commands your heart. Because it's from a heart of love that true obedience flows. Let me show this by by looking at at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We call this uh, the love chapter. This is where love is sort of defined for us. Where Paul sort of fills this word agape, this Greek word uh, that that had a lot to do with uh, a mental understand, a head a head kind of love, choosing to love, and he fills it with meaning. In verse three, Paul says, "If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing." A person can do some amazingly sacrificial actions, right? Give away everything they have. 
give up their very life, but have not love. This makes it clear that love cannot be equated with with mere sacrificial action. It cannot be equated with any action, really. Love is not, not, not just doing something for someone, regardless of your emotions, your motivations, love includes our emotions, our feelings. So, so why is, it, is this idea of, of love, that love is not what we feel, but what we do, become so popular among Christians? First, I think, because uh, there's some truth, there's a hint of truth there. It's true that, that mere feelings can never replace actual deeds of love. And it's true that, that efforts to love must be made even in the absence of feelings. I mean, just because you don't feel something doesn't mean you still don't have to act and do what's right. However, it's not true to say that love is simply what you do and not what you feel. True love for God or for anyone will involve, involve both emotions and those emotions will result in actions. We see it in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. This is uh, filling this, this love, this biblical love, really with meaning. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yeah, yeah there are some actions there, right? Uh, patience and kindness, not boasting, not being rude. But notice the emotional uh, content as well. Paul says love doesn't envy. It's not irritable or resentful. That it, do, that it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices, rejoices in the truth. That it hopes all things. Now all these are, are feelings. If you feel certain way, if you feel a certain way, such as envy or irritation or resentment, you are not loving, Paul says. And, it, and if you do not feel certain things such as joy in the truth and hope, you're not loving. In other words, yes, love is more than a feeling. Love has to lead to action. But, but no, love is not less than a feeling. It includes emotion. I mean, that should be clear already from the greatest commandment. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. I don't, know, I don't know if there's anything else to add to that. The great commandment is to love God with every fiber of your being, to love Him completely with our mind, with our will, with our emotions. But here's where the second problem comes. And this is the, the second reason why I believe uh, Christians have come to equate love for God, not with a feeling, but with an action. They would say, and I've heard people say, how can God command us to have emotions? We don't control our emotions. They're either there or they're not, right? I can't say to myself, okay, uh, self, feel happy. Right? I can't, I can't, I'm either happy or I'm, I'm not happy. I can't feel happy or not. But scripture, does, but scripture says, uh, but I'm going to command your feelings. It demands that our emotions be one way or another. Here are just a, a few examples from Jesus. I mean, it's all, they're all over the Bible. In Matthew 5, I, I didn't put them up there, but if you want to jot these down and look at them later. Matthew 
12. Jesus commands that we rejoice in certain, certain circumstances. And Paul commands us to rejoice always, right? In Luke chapter 12, 5, Jesus commands that we fear the right person. We're not supposed to fear men. We're supposed to fear God. He's commanding you to have an emotional response. In Luke chapter 9, 26, Jesus commands that we not feel shame over him or his words. You know, as you go out and you're sharing with someone, Jesus is commanding you not to be ashamed of that. Matthew 18, 35, Jesus commands that we forgive from the heart. That we not just say, okay, whatever, I'll forgive. But that we forgive. We say, okay. Speaking about Jesus' commands with regards to emotions, John Piper says this. Jesus can demand it. The fact that I may be too corrupt to experience the emotions that I ought to have does not change my duty to have them. If Jesus commands it, I should have it. My moral inability to produce it does not remove my guilt. It reveals my corruption. It makes me desperate for a new heart which Jesus came to give. The problem is that that all too often we don't have the right emotions. And so we rationalize, why don't I have the right emotions? And sometimes we change the definition of the emotions. I heard someone say once from this pulpit, not this one, it was a different place. Uh, And it was a guest speaker, by the way. So don't wonder which pastor said this. Uh, He changed the definition of love, right? He said, well, I, I know in my heart, I, I, don't, I can't love God like I love my daughter. And I'm commanded to love God, so loving God like I love my God, daughter with emotions must not be what love means. Loving God must mean just obeying God, just doing what God says. Because we, 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 we don't want to admit we're morally corrupt and we, we can't love God because our heart is in the wrong place. We don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so it must be my misunderstanding of what the Bible says. Sometimes we can muster up the will to obey Him in certain circumstances. And if obedience, if action is love. We can, we can say, I love Him because I obeyed Him in this circumstance at this time. But if loving Him uh, truly involves how you feel, your emotions, if loving God means an actual desire to be with Him, an actual desire to learn more about Him, an actual desire to serve Him, uh, an actual desire to live for Him, then the fact that we do not experience these feelings says something about, not the commands, it says something about our heart. As John Piper put it, it reveals my corruption. I I think Adam and Eve, before the fall, you know, they were in love with God. They wanted uh, to be with God. They wanted a relationship with God. They felt for God. And then the fall came in, and corruption came. And we've inherited that corruption in our hearts. And so we no longer feel the love for God that we should. So what's the solution to this problem of a a corrupt heart? The, The solution is a new and a changed heart. 
As Paul describes in, in Romans, uh, he calls it a circumcised heart. Moses wrote to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? Why is he circumcising the heart? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You can't do it. There is no way you can love God as he requires, as he commands, as he demands, unless God comes in and he transforms your heart. You see, it's God who circumcises the heart so that you can love him with with all your heart. God can command you to love him with your heart, your emotions, because God gives you the ability to obey that command. He transforms your heart. He gives you a heart of love for him. Therefore, final truth, loving God is for his glory. We began with loving God is for our good, but ultimately, and it is, but ultimately loving God is for his glory. Our ability to love God is actually a gift from God. It's the Lord that enables us to love the Lord. In 1 John 4.19, I think Chad quoted this this morning, the apostle writes this short yet profound truth, we love because he first loved us. God is the source of, God is love. John also says, God is the source of all love. Our ability to love him, our ability to love anyone else is only because God first loved us. Because God created us in his image. That image has been marred. And now we must receive this new heart. So to the extent that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's because God has given us the ability to do so. God, not you or I, deserve the credit, uh, the glory for our love for Him. Oh, I, I love God. You know, some people are like impressed with themselves and, because they're emotional and they feel love for God. I love God so much. Well, I'm so happy for you. But God gave you that ability. You were corrupt and He entered in and, and gave you that ability. We need to ask ourselves this question. Do, do the people in my life, do the people in my life know that I love God? Do my family and friends and my neighbors, co-workers know that God is the center of my universe? That God is the sun and I'm, I'm just orbiting around Him. That I love Him, and, and that's why I live for Him. You know, it, it's not that impressive to, I believe God will send me to hell if I don't obey Him. Well, of course you should obey, but I love Him, and I serve Him out of love. That's a different thing. Does the world see uh, your joyful obedience to His commands? Even and especially uh, when his commands mean you must make uh, what, what the world would consider at least a sacrifice. Do you make decisions about your time? Where you spend your time, your, your treasures, your, your money, your possessions, your talents, the things God's gifted with, based on your love for God, based on his purposes, what, what you do, where you live, your career, your plans for your life. Do those come out of your relationship with God? Do you stand up for the truth of God's Word? Do you share with others who God is and how important He is in your life? John Piper says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. 
God receives glory when people see you love God. You're satisfied with God. God is, is the center of your life. He, he must be really great. God is most glorified in me when I am deeply in love with Him. So we've seen five truths about loving God. Loving God is for our good. Loving God is commanded. Loving God is shown by obedience. Loving God includes our emotions. I would add, to it. loving God must include our emotions, our heart. Loving God is for His glory. So the question is, the question for us today and, and every day, based on what we've seen in God's Word, do I love God? Am I pursuing love for God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all of my strength? Do I feel love for God? And do those feelings motivate my actions, my obedience to God? And if the answer is yes, then continue to grow. Continue to follow that path and, and, and seek to help. I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if you believe, again, I'm not talking about perfection at all here, but if you're on that path and you believe you're, you're loving God, you're experiencing love for God, then you need to be helping others in this area. This is really key to the, to the Christian life, to, to, to our fellowship together, to help one another in our loving relationship with God. Continue to grow. Continue to help others grow. But if your answer is no, if you can honestly say, I, I just don't. You know, especially how you've talked about it today, especially involving the heart. I just don't feel that I love God. I don't, you know, I don't have any kind of emotional response to Him. You know, I'm, I'm just hoping to go to heaven one day. So if that's the case, either your heart is, has never been circumcised, you've never been transformed by God, because remember, it's only because of God's work in your life that you can love Him. And if that's the case, then the solution is to call upon His name, to call upon the Lord, to give your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, to trust in Him. To ask Him to come into your life and to forgive your sins. To allow God to give you a new heart. To, to plead with God. God, give me a new heart. Transform my heart. Circumcise my heart. That you might truly turn from sin and turn to your loving Heavenly Father. So, so if you don't feel love for God, either your heart has not been transformed or you've allowed your heart to grow cold. Unfortunately, that's a possibility. You've not cultivated, you've not pursued love for God. You see, you see, God gives us a new heart, but it's not magic. God gives us a new heart, but then we're, He gives us the means to cultivate that heart, to grow that heart, to grow in love with God. Now, how do we do that? I think it's important to understand from the beginning, the church struggled with maintaining their love for God. This is not an easy thing. In the book of Revelation, written about 60, 70 years after the resurrection, God instructs the Apostle John to write these words. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Uh, this is Ephesus, you know, the book of Ephesians, the people that, that have the armor of God, the people that have, uh, for by grace you're saved through faith, it's a gift of God. You know, they've got some great truths just in that one letter that they were given, and they have others as well. Notice these words are written to the church, to God's people. 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's that's a picture of Jesus. We won't go into the, the symbolism there. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are are not, and, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I mean, these people had good doctrine. They worked hard, they endured, they were strong in Christ. Sounds like the church is doing really good, right? A lot of good works, a lot of action. If action equaled love, then they would have been fine. But then Jesus says, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. These uh, Ephesian Christians were doing a lot of good stuff. But Jesus says, I have something against you. I'm not going to let it slide. My goal isn't to create uh, people who will just do stuff. My goal is your heart. They'd abandon the love they had at first. They had it, and they'd abandon it. They'd lost their first love, their love for God, their love for Christ. And this was a major problem. This isn't just a minor inconvenience. So Jesus goes on, he says, and gives them some instructions. He instructs instructions that, that all who desire to love, to grow in, in love with God, God we, we must follow. And he says, first, remember therefore from which you have fallen. Remember, reflect on, think about the love relationship you once had with the Lord. I think, I think when we come to Christ, those first few months and years, there, there is this enamorment with God often, this natural enamorment as He changes our heart. Remember how important He was to you. Remember the joy of His presence in your life. Realize that it's possible. Realize it's possible to regain that relationship again. Sometimes we think, oh, that's just for then. That's just the feelings you get when you're a new believer or something. Don't don't give up on reestablishing the love you had at first. And then, uh, and this is big, one word, repent. Understand that even if you are doing a lot of right Christian stuff like the Ephesians, your lack of love for God is sin. Don't don't, don't try to uh, make excuses for it. It's sin. Sin that must be confessed and repented of. You must turn from your sin of lovelessness to God. You must go to the Lord in humility and call upon Him to work in your heart. To give you the love you're lacking. I mean, I would say this. If you don't feel, and I mean the word feel, love for God in your life, you know, take a day off and get on your knees and beg Him for it. He will give it to you. Beg Him to give you love for Him. A feeling of love for Him. True love for Him. Repent of your sin of of not caring. Oh, I haven't felt love for God in 10 years. Well, you've been in sin for 10 years. You need to repent of that. You need to come to Him. And it may take more than a day of calling upon Him and saying, God, Replace this 
this love for the things of the world, this love for even the good things. My children, you know, don't replace, you know, I want to keep loving my children. But give me a love for you like I, I love my, my grand. I mean, I see a picture of my grandson. Oh my gosh, the feelings just well up, right? And you too, Michael, when I see pictures of you. You know, <laughs> you're not quite as cute anymore. But in a different way, you understand. And then, once you, you've repented, and then, and then get up off your knees and do the works you did at first. John doesn't here describe uh, uh, what the works are, but since the Ephesians were doing a lot of external works and they were standing up and they were, they were fighting for good doctrine and they were strong in Christ, it seems that John is talking about internal, relational works. Do the works that you did when you were in a loving relationship with me. What are those relational works? Well, we're going to go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We, didn't hit, we try to hit it almost every week. It's kind of a good summary of, of church life. And I think it's there in that verse. This is what the early church spent time doing. This early church, uh, this isn't the Ephesian church, this is the church in Jerusalem, but this is, this is much of what we have been looking at over the past several weeks. And they devoted themselves. I mean, remember that devotion is a heart word? It wasn't like they dutifully did these things. In their heart, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and, and to the prayers. And this takes us full circle, Right? Because, as I said at the beginning, the reason we do these things is because of our love for God. I mean, these people had obviously come to Christ, and Christ had given them this new heart, and now they're devoted to the things of God. But it's also these things that God uses. These are means for us to maintain our love for Him. These are the works you do at first. These are the relational works that will help you grow in love with God, and these works must never stop. Spend time in prayer, in His presence, and in relationship with Him. I mean, I mean uh, spend extended time with Him, especially if you're struggling with this idea of loving Him. Spend time in His Word, the apostles, learning of Him. Learning, I mean, you need something uh, to motivate your love, and, and nothing motivates it more than the Word of God. Reading of His greatness, His holiness, His majesty, all He's done for you for his people throughout the ages. Meditate on, on who he is, his great and mighty deeds. Spend time with others who love God, fellowshipping, growing together, talking not about, I mean, not that, let me just uh, review. What time is it? Okay, quickly. Yesterday, uh, Pastor Elliot from Reformed Baptist Church spoke to us group of men's, and he talked about fellowship. And he talked about, okay, there's the uh, initial, it's kind of three levels of fellowship. The th- uh, there's the initial, you know, just getting to know people and talking about who you are. And then there's the getting to know people, going deep in people's lives. And I, and, and I think sometimes we stop there. And then he talked about this third aspect of fellowship that I hadn't really thought about. This fellowship that we are partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we then come together as a church And we plan and we strategize and we fellowship together about the gospel, about glorifying God. And so that's what we need to be doing. And as we fellowship together and as we plan together and as we seek to to reach out with the gospel, I think we grow in love 
with God, as we spend time in the gospel. I mean, maybe the heart of understanding, growing in love for God is just spend time reading the gospel. And I, I mean the gospels, of course, but just reading the story of, of how God sent His Son into the world for, for us who are sinners. In that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Meditate on that for a while and see if your love for God increases. This isn't rocket science, you know. Like any other relationship, if you desire to grow in love with God, you have to spend time with God. Spend time with the body of Christ. Spend time in His presence. So this morning as we close our service, the worship team is going to lead us in worship, I think that expresses our love for God. And, I, and, I, and as, we, as I pray, I'm going to pray in a minute, and then as we sing these final, I think we're singing two songs here, consider where you are in your relationship with God. Do you need a transformed heart? Have you ever had a transformed heart? Have you ever come to Christ, trusted in Christ, given Him your life, and asked Him to your Lord, to change you, to give you the capacity to, to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or, or do you need to remember the love you had uh, with Him in the past? Do you need to repent of your current sin of lovelessness towards God? Do you need to return to the, the relational works you did at first? I mean, maybe today is a day of new commitment to Christ, to God, to loving God. I'm going to I'm going to do those works. I'm committing to you this day, to do, Lord, to do those works. Maybe that's what this time is for in your life. To consider the time. How much time are you spending in God's Word? How much time are you spending in prayer? How much time are you spending in fellowship? Make a new commitment. Not because it's a duty. Not because it's commanded, though it is. But, but to help you. It's for your good that you would grow in love with God through these things. Join me in prayer that God would enable each of us to pursue loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we might be people, that we might be a church that that truly loves God. And out of that love for Him, that we might then serve Him as well. Lord God, thank You for this day. And thank You that You loved us first. Lord, This wasn't a sermon about uh, your love for us, Lord, but we can't forget that. That's first, that's foremost, that you loved us and and that you've called us into a loving relationship. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each and every one of us here, Lord, that, that we would take this time. We would take this time to examine our hearts, to ask ourselves, do I love God? Lord, and then out of that, we would seek to do uh We would seek to do what we need to do to grow in our relationship with you, Lord. I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would transform our hearts, that you would give us new hearts where where needed, Lord, and that you would give us uh, strength to make new commitments to spending time with you, to grow in our loving relationship with you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Come.